I've talked about this before. I run out of gas on a fairly regular basis. I always have. It's ridiculous, and I know this, um, but I just cannot figure out what to do about it. Um, every time it happens, I get inundated with advice um, from people who love me uh, and who uh, who want to help me and on how to make sure I don't run out of gas anymore. A lot of times I get met with shock. Um, I ran out of gas on the way to a graveside service at a funeral one time, and when I showed up, um, Dale could not get over the fact that I ran out of gas. He was like, what happened? Everything okay? And I was like, yeah, I ran out of gas. And he was like, and, uh, and then I started talking about something else. He was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Why would you run out of gas? Is your gauge broken? I was like, no, Dale, I just ran out of gas. He was like, but but why? Why would you run out of gas? And it was a, he just couldn't believe it. So people tell me to check my gauge every single time I get in the car before I go anywhere, and I do that except for the times that I forget to do that. And those times are when I run out of gas. I, I have no idea how I forget, but if I knew, I wouldn't forget. And so uh, I've had people tell me to fill my vehicle up anytime the car gets to like a half a tank. Just never let it get that low. And I do that. And when I run out of gas, I realize that I forgot to notice that the car got to half a tank. <laughs> and I've had people... <laughs> Tell me to leave myself little notes to remind me to get gas, um, which is a great idea. Except if I were capable of paying attention to the little note, I would probably pay attention to that little gauge that they put in every single car that tells you when you need gas. I, I, I don't notice the notes that I leave myself either. Um, Twenty years ago or so, um, what do you got here? <laughs> Awesome. Nicole says, Josiah, I used to do that too, just run around on E. Uh, 20 years ago, um, I ran the hardest run of my entire life because I ran out of gas. I was laying carpet at the time, um, and that's when I had an important uh, had an important plans one evening. But I had to finish a fairly large carpet job before I could get home um, and kind of commence said plans. I was on my way uh, to this job that was already going to be a challenge to finish, and on the way to the job, I ran out of gas. And the nearest gas station was two miles down the highway. Um, at that time, I was running quite a bit. I recently lost a whole bunch of weight, so I was in pretty good shape. Um, and I had an empty two-and-a-half-gallon gas tank in my work van um, from some mowing that I had recently done. So I grabbed a can, and I took off running. I ran full out for two miles to the gas station. I filled the can, uh, and then I ran full out with a two-and-a-half-gallon full tank of gas, you know, switching it from hand-to-hand as I ran as fast as I could without ever stopping to walk or rest. Um, You would think that if anything was going to motivate me um, to, uh, to overcome my issue with gas gauges, that run um, would have do it, uh, would have done it. Um, but incidentally, I did make it home in time um, for my evening plans. I'm trying to catch up on all the the comments um, as they come through too, so that's why I'm distracted. This is too much for somebody with ADD, but I do love seeing you guys comment. So please don't stop. It it makes this way more fun. Um, <laughs> ironically, it was the words of a philosopher 
that finally protected me from being regularly stranded on the side of the road with no gas. Um, when asked to sum up the uh, entire enterprise of philosophy, Socrates quotes one of the three famous maxims from the, the uh, Oracle of Delphi, namely, philosopher, know thyself. Um, as he expounded on this concept, uh, it was really quite fascinating how profound the concept really is, encompassing such philosophical endeavors as metaphysics, um, which is the study of reality, what is real. Um, because your estimation of reality will depend um, entirely on the bias that you bring to your observations. Knowing yourself includes epistemology and understanding why you think the way you think. Epistemology is understanding the way knowledge works and, and things. So self-knowledge obviously encompasses psychology and sociology and politics and relationships and on and on and on and on. But one day, after the umpteenth time of me running out of gas, I decided the Delphinic maxim to know myself took on new meaning. For, uh, for some reason, while on the side of the road with a dead vehicle awaiting rescue, I realized the philosophical advice to know thyself was more than um, a thought exercise to aid, you know, in the effective collection of knowledge and wisdom. Knowing thyself was also profoundly practical. Um, so with Socrates and the Oracle of Delphi in mind, I went to the gas station and bought a one-gallon can of gas. And I filled it and stuck it in the back of my truck, and from that day on, I surrendered in my fight to find the right methodology for remembering to check my gas gauge and decided instead to simply know myself as a person who runs out of gas and who needs a backup tank uh, to keep from getting stranded. And so, uh, uh, since that day, my spare tank has been called into service to get to many a gas station. It's embarrassing to stand on the side of the road and add my single gallon of gas to my car so that I can get to the station. But I have not been fully stranded uh, or forced to run four miles while carrying a gas can since deciding to accept who I am and to know myself. And so I've chosen to count that as a, uh, as a win. Uh, and I will add that since I've started carrying a gas can everywhere with me, uh, I have helped a few other people um, who have the same petroleum handicap that I have. Uh, uh, and every time I do, I get give them the lecture on Socrates and the Oracle of Delphi and the importance of self-knowledge. Um, and it is kind of funny. Every time I have to use my gas can to, uh, to help somebody else, and I'm in that weird situation where I have you know, a relatively full tank of gas and no backup can. I always text the family. We have a family chat that the whole family's in. I always text them and I'm flying with them. Hey guys, I'm out here with no backup can. You know, everybody be ready to rescue me. And I'll, they'll all text me. Dad, fill up your backup can. Stop right now and do it. Don't do this, Dad. Fill up your can. Uh, because they all know. Uh, they know me as well as I now know myself. Anyway, um, Every year in January, uh, we spend a little time focusing on who we are as Open Table Community Church and, uh, and how that identity should shape the way we do things here. And, uh, and we usually start by 
um, kind of zooming in and reading or rereading um, our uh, our vision statement together. Um, so we're going to do that. This is Open Table Community Church's vision statement. Open Table Community Church is a community organized by and around the Word of God to cooperate in the mission of God of furthering the kingdom of God. Uh, we accomplish this by gathering in worship together around a common teaching and a common table, by living in fidelity to Christ and to one another, and by working together to bring reconciliation to the four relationships broken by sin in the fall. This was the vision um, we used to basically organize what was originally a small group um, into uh, a church um, kind of exactly five years ago. We're coming up on, on uh, uh, I think we're just, uh, beginning of February will be our five-year um, anniversary. Uh, and our vision for the church was basically divided into two halves. The first half is kind of who we are or who we see ourselves as. Open Table Community Church is a community organized by and around the Word of God to cooperate in the mission of God of furthering the kingdom of God. So this is how we see ourselves at Open Table. Um, we are a community of people who uh, are only a thing because the Word of God says we are a thing. Uh, and because we are defined by the Word of God, a, a major part of our community life is centered around that same text. Um, but we don't just do that so we can get smarter um, or have buddies. We recognize um, ourselves in the story of God. And we gather around that same story so that we can cooperate in the mission of God. Uh, this piece is important, I believe, because it's easy for us to have a mission. Um, and, and to, uh, you know, we do this all the time with mission statements. And, and not that those are bad, but a lot of times those are, if we're honest, our mission might be to grow a big church uh, or as big a church as possible, to get X number of people saved or to start a revival or to accomplish some worthy political goal. And any of these are fine missions, except they assume a great deal that, honestly, I don't think we're smart enough to assume. Um, if there is an emotional theme amongst the prophetic voices in the Old Testament when God first calls them, it seems to be, you want me to say what? <laughs> Never would one of the prophets have chosen their specific mission. See, when we form our own mission statements, we um, uh, who on earth would ever choose to be a prophet? You know, who says, I want to stand against what everyone else is saying, um, and I would like it if, if none of those people would like me because of that. <laughs> who, who says that? I would like for my ministry to always bear the fragrance of frustration because uh, no one is listening to me. And if possible, I'd like to be physically abused for a day God. Like, none of us would choose that mission statement. And yet, that was the mission statement of almost every prophet in the Old Testament. Um, not to mention, when we create our own mission statement, um, we assume a great deal about timing that I don't feel we can assume. I've always wondered what it would be like to travel back in time as a church to the day before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. We'd probably have a meeting and we'd plan out ways to reach the town. Maybe we'd have a booth at Sodom Days or, or uh, in the summer or the Gomorrah Leaf Festival. Um, or maybe we'd plan an event at the church to draw kids to our 
system and cake fest and family services and, and all of our planning would seem silly when the fire and brimstone started to fall. Even as a church, we can come, uh, it's completely possible for a mission to clash with God's mission, with whatever God is doing in His timing. So, here on the table, we've chosen not to formulate our own mission. Um, rather, we try to align ourselves with God's mission. With one caveat, we assume that whatever that may look like, God's ultimate mission is to advance His upside-down, loving, grace-filled kingdom that Jesus both preached and demonstrated. Um, so that's how we see ourselves, as a community organized by and around the Word of God to cooperate in the mission of God of furthering the kingdom of God. Um, uh, but the second is of the vision statement, uh, the statement that kind of serves as a mirror by which we are see ourselves, um, is less about who we are and is more about uh, what we do. We accomplish this by gathering in worship together, by a common teaching, a common table, by living in fidelity to Christ and to one another, and by working to bring reconciliation uh, to the four relationships broken by sin in the fall. Um, so we become the people we are in the first half of the vision by doing these things. Uh, the most obvious is the Sunday stuff. We gather to worship around a common teaching and a common table. The teaching um, is obviously our time in the Bible. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone knows this, but I, I write my own sermons each week, and I write them according to what I feel God is doing in the life of our church at the time. Um, we do have a preaching cycle based on the, the high holidays of Advent and but rarely do I know when I'm going to preach more than a couple weeks ahead of time. Um, I honestly don't think... Uh, and I don't think of my sermons as really preaching to you. Uh, I genuinely think of our sermon series as us studying together. Um, I consider it a common teaching that we're kind of all going through together. I usually learn um, probably more than you guys do um, as we study together. I don't have like a big agenda that I'm trying to push forward um, from the pulpit. I, I feel like God kind of leads us step by step into our next study depending on what's going on in the life of our church. And our common table, um, of course, speaks to the communion table, um, but it's more than that. Um, the, the table speaks to all the rhythms and cycles and liturgies in the life of the church. Um, a lot like meals uh, at a table that come around at about the same time every day, the table speaks of rhythm and predictability and reliability. And, and one of the ways that we become the people in this vision that we're talking about is to show up and participate in those rhythms. Um, but of course, gathering once a week um, isn't enough. We also live faithfully to Christ and each other. Um, this means we show up. We do life together. We're, we're there when things are good and we're there when things aren't. Um, we live faithfully, um, which is a really big word um, that is unfortunately I think sometimes cheapened by modern culture. We tend to use faithfulness to mean I didn't cheat, you know, especially in relationships. Uh, when real faithfulness means showing up and being present day in and, and day out. Um, so we are a community who studies together, engages in the rhythms and cycles and liturgies of the faith together, and we show up for each other. Um, and uh, so this statement 
defines who we are. We're a community that uh, gathers around the Word, etc. Um, it shows how we become those people by gathering in worship and showing up, etc. And the final part basically outlines the what we do, or maybe what we focus on. It says, we do this by gathering together to bring reconciliation to the four relationships broken by sin in the fall. Um, If you've been here long at all, you've heard me talk about these relationships. There's a point in the book of Genesis where after God has created this perfect world and this um, perfect environment, he put two perfect people in it and gave them um, a job and, and, and relationships. Uh, they decided to go their own way. And when they went their own way, um, immediately um, some things were broken. The, the second they ate this fruit that they were forbidden to eat, uh, the Bible says they looked down and, and felt shame for the first time. They were no longer comfortable in their own skin. They were no longer um, at peace with who they were. Uh, and, and, and they felt the need to cover themselves up for the first time ever. This this. Shame was the broken relationship with themselves. Um, they no longer felt comfortable with themselves uh, and were at peace with themselves. And so, and then immediately God shows up in the garden, and, and for the first time ever, they felt this instinct to hide from God, to pull away from God, to, to, to instead of running to God, to run from God. That had never happened before. Um, and something in this decision broke this relationship with God in such a way. Um, that the instinct was to run from them. And then when God confronted them and asked what had happened, uh, Adam, who had just one chapter ago seen Eve and, and just in seeing her was like, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The two shall be one. Um, he saw no reason to think of themselves as two people but one person. Now, after sin, he, he creates distance between him and Eve. And he says, that woman over there made me eat the fruit. They no longer wanted to be seen as one. They wanted to be seen as separate. Um, and so this relationship with the other was broken. And then as God kind of revealed to them what this was going to mean, what this new dynamic was going to be, um, we find out that their relationship kind of with their calling and vocation was also broken. We told the woman, you know, uh, everything you're called to do is not really painful um, and hard. And he told the man, you know, to, to make a living and to scratch out a living to feed your family. It's going to be hard and you're going to do it by the sweat of your brow. It's no longer going to cooperate with you. It's going to take effort. And so four relationships were broken. The relationship with the self, the relationship with God, the relationship with the other, and the relationship with our calling and vocation. And even the relationship with the earth was broken. Um, and, and whether or not you believe the scriptures is, is 100% accurate or not, if it's not, Somebody, whatever, 3,500 years ago or more, really nailed the human condition. I mean, if it's not a divine book, then it's, that's miraculous in and of itself. Because you could not sum up the human condition better than our broken relationship with God, our broken relationship with ourselves, and all the shame that we struggle with, our broken relationship with other people, and our broken relationship with our vocation. That pretty much sums up what it means to be human in a broken world. And so, um, so the reason that we uh, actually list this particular outline from the book of Genesis as we articulate our vision as a, as a church community 
is because I put a great deal of emphasis on original design. Uh, many Christians have kind of reduced our faith system to uh, to getting saved and getting to heaven, uh, you know, which is great. And boy, oh boy, I think that this is a worthy ambition. But it seems to me that if the entire goal of human life is to go to heaven, then I have to wonder why God didn't just make Adam and Eve and put them in heaven, right? If that's the goal, getting to heaven, then why didn't God start that way? Um, but that wasn't the case. It, it seems to me that the very first humans um, were made very intentionally and placed very intentionally in a select location and called, again, very intentionally to do a particular job in a particular way. Uh, and when our many, 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 many times great-grandparents decided that they would follow their own path and define for themselves what was good and what was evil. In other words, when they sinned, they somehow broke that original design. And, and we talk all the time in Christianity about redemption and how Jesus redeems us and restores us, but those words indicate that we're being redeemed back to something, that we're being restored back to something. And we don't often discuss what that something is. So the Christian life just becomes about praying a prayer to accept Jesus and then kind of holding on and waiting to go to heaven with no other kind of clearly defined goals. Maybe we want to, you know, sin less and become better people. I don't know. But but we don't know what we're being redeemed to or restored to. But according to Genesis account, the man and woman were created in the image of God. They were given a home and calling and relationships. And it just makes sense to me that whatever the man and woman were able to do in that earthly space was what they were designed to do, what they were created to do. I can't imagine in whatever conversations God had with Adam and Eve before the fateful fruit salad, he said things like, one day, when you go to heaven, you're going to love the streets of gold. I can't imagine that conversation happening to Adam and Eve when they lived in the perfect garden, that God was fading them with some future heaven. So, we have a tiny glimpse in the very beginning of the book what humanity was supposed to be. Um, and we get a little further picture of how things were broken when Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, and then if you wanted to jump all the way to Revelation 22, I didn't put it in the message this morning, so we didn't have time, but if you want to go look at the first part of, of uh, Revelation chapter 22, it sounds like when this whole story wraps up, it's the last chapter of the Bible, by the way, it sounds like when this whole story wraps up, we're going to go back to that. You see the same garden language. He says they're going to be in a garden and the people are going to rule and reign again and there will be no more curse. Um, and so it seems to me, as I'm trying to figure out what my life should look like, uh, and I mean really look like in terms of experiencing real fulfillment, I find it right here in the original design. What were humans made for? Who were we made to be? I'm supposed to be deeply connected uh, in relationship with God. I'm supposed to always be growing and changing and maturing to the point that I'm comfortable in my own skin and at peace with the way God made me and accepting the grace that He does give to cover the broken places. I'm supposed to be in deep and loving relationships with others to the point that their fate seems like my fate and all the things that divide us seem inconsequential compared to the love that binds us together. And I'm supposed to take seriously my role and function in the earth. I'm supposed to recognize that my existence comes with a calling 
um, which means I wasn't intended to be the, the center of my own story in a, in a perfect world with no brokenness. I would still give myself in service to a purpose. When God first commissioned Adam and Eve, He said, Go fill the earth and govern over it, reign over all the stuff. Notice He didn't say, Go and be happy. You do you. Go do you. Go and live your best life. No, God said, Serve, work, make, do things. The happiness and fulfillment were found in that vocation. But all four of these relationships were and are broken by sin. Every time we sin, we reinforce that brokenness. And the, the best way back to that original design is to focus on these areas of brokenness and to work to bring redemption to those relationships. So every year during our Identity, identity Series, um, and usually a couple other times throughout the year, we look back at these four relationships and kind of check in to see how we're doing. And, and this year is no different. Except this year, um, I feel like we're going to put a little different spin on it. Um, we're calling this series The Real Open Table because we want to focus on authenticity, um, which is nothing new here. Uh, we talk quite often about the need to be real at Open Table. We talk about showing up with all your hurts and hang-ups, your angers and frustrations, your questions and doubts. We talk quite a lot about how there's simply no reason to be fake here. We'd rather have the real you and the mess that might come with that uh, rather than us just all get along because none of us are being real. Uh, that's a spooky situation um, to, get a, to get along really well with a fake person. Um, that makes no sense to us. So we stress being real with God because He can handle your ugly. Um, and being real with yourself and being real with others. Being authentic in the world with the people in your circle of influence because... The world sees too many fake Christians. And none of this is changing. We still want all of that authenticity, and, and we beg you to be your true self when you come to the table. Um, but I do want to look at the other side of that coin this year. Namely, I want to look at what it means to accept someone else's real self. What does it mean to accept God for who He is? What does it mean to truly accept yourself for who you are? And could that be harder than it sounds? What does it mean to, to both give someone else the space to be fully themselves, even if it drives you nuts, but to also still completely and totally love them? So what does it mean to accept your calling and vocation as where God wants you to fulfill the great commandments and the great commission? And I'm sure that that sounds uh, a little rudimentary and basic, um, but I honestly think that this may be one of the single greatest struggles in our world today. Um, so this week I want to introduce this series um, as we uh, as we kind of lay the groundwork for what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks. And I want to look at what it means to, to love the real God. Um, now this may seem super easy, right? I mean, God is God. You know, we might even say we worship the God of the Bible. Or I worship the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, and yet it's amazing how much the God whom we worship looks an awful lot like us, right? He generally likes the things we like. He dislikes the people that um, we're already pretty uncomfortable with. Um, if we were to show up, if he were to show up and vote, we're pretty sure he'd vote for our party. Every year, you know, uh, or every war we get into, we're 
pretty sure he's on our side. And, and I think a lot of this kind of coincidence that God turns out to look an awful lot like us um, comes from our modern understanding of evangelism. Um, and what I mean by that is we sell Jesus like a product. Um, if our uh, customer isn't real fond of religion in general, the pitch goes like this. He'll forgive your sins. He'll heal your body. He loves you and would never leave you. He'll give you the keys of the kingdom uh, and, and, and a promise of greater things, to do greater things than he did. Um, he'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. His grace makes it to where you can basically do anything you want and be covered. And above all else, he's setting up this killer retirement package for you called heaven. Like, and, and when we accept and buy in, we're buying that picture of God, that kind of incomplete mask of who God is. And, and for the most of us, what forgives the people of the Jesus always spoke against adultery. He condemned lust so that he could hammer everybody. He told sinners to go and sin no more. He lived a perfect life as an example that he expects us to follow. And he told us the world hated him, so it's totally okay that people don't like you either. He flipped tables in the temple marketplace, and above all else, he often spoke about how the ungodly would be cast in the hand of God. whatsoever for the unborn. You've got that God if you're interested in that package. There's the God who values personal freedom and the one who values the collective over the autonomy of the individual. If you want to opt for the more theological models, there's a God who controls everything like a detached chess player moving pieces at will. And there's also the God who has a deep desire to do his will but is limited or handcuffed by the choices of people. And in that same family of options, there's the God who is caught up in this cosmic battle with an almost equally matched opponent named Satan. And God wins some and loses some against this foe. And if I haven't made you uncomfortable yet, <laughs> believe me, if I had time, I could. But suffice it to say, we've grown so accustomed to evangelism being a sales pitch where we are begged and manipulated and pressured to buy, that we, dis- we assume we deserve the product that we were sold. If we don't like the product on offer, we think we can keep shopping and wait for a better deal. But I don't think it's always been this way. I think the very first sermon ever preached in church history uh, kind of sets the bar different about how to tell people about Jesus. This is from Acts 2. This is the very first sermon ever preached. And it says, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing 
powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and he freed his previous plans carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. But David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we were all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven, at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see here today. For David himself never ascended into heaven. Yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in a place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Now this sounds fairly um, familiar uh, as kind of a description of who Jesus is, right? Um, You might hear similar messages in any church today. He's the one the prophet spoke of uh, without even knowing it. He's the fulfillment of all the unanswered questions of the Old Testament. He's the Messiah. And, of course, he's the one risen from the dead. These are all the basics, um, except the weirdest thing is missing. There's no sales pitch. There's no invitation. Basically, the entire sermon is just an introduction to who Jesus is, and that's it. Almost like he's saying, oh, by the way, Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah. I can just, this is what Jesus. And the next is what I most about this sermon. Peter's words are And they said What should we do? Peter doesn't have to sell them anything. There's no, if you were to be on the way home tonight, do you know where you would wake up? Or whatever you have done, whatever you have I find, and I'm not actually even trying to talk bad about these methods because many of us tend to think that way. But the thing that really makes me think about this original sermon is the way that it, it just said, this is who Jesus is. Period. And the invitation was actually given by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people. The people came to Peter and the apostles were like, help, what do we do? I love how blunt Peter's response to their inquiry was. We're used to just raise your hand and repeat this prayer after me. Super easy, and you're in. Just sign on the dot and look at it. Right? We're, we're used to, we're going to make this sales pitch as easy as possible. But here's what Peter said. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, these were people who were in Jerusalem to worship God at the festival of Pentecost. This isn't a bunch of atheists um, who, who love to ask a million questions about the nature of truth and how we can be so confident in something for which there's no empirical evidence. No, these are God worshipers. And Peter basically says, turn away um, from the things that you think you know about and understand about God and turn toward the real God and do things His way. Turn toward the real God. And maybe the, the best evidence that I can think of that the Holy Spirit was present on that day wasn't the sound of wind in the upper room or the flames of fire on everybody's heads or the speaking in tongues. The best evidence that the Holy Spirit is in fact there is that 3,000 people were capable of laying down their preconceived understandings of God and embracing the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as far as these people know, they are believers. So imagine how hard it would be for you. What would it take for, to convince you that you had it all wrong? And the truth is in a totally different direction. Hopefully, it would take a genuine move of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. What I really want to grab hold of here is the way that Peter didn't uh, sell this crowd Jesus or the Jesus that they wanted. He told them about the Jesus who is and then told them to turn away from everything else, repent, in other words, and turn to the real God. And I think this is more of a return to God than any real revolutionary idea because God has been revealing Himself this way all along. When God first revealed Himself to Moses way back in the mountains of Moab through a burning bush. I've been holding my coffee for a few minutes. I had to sneak a drink. <laughs> Moses wanted to know which model of God was talking to him. Remember, Moses was raised in Egypt. This could have been the, the mummified God of the underworld like Osiris or the falcon-headed God of the sun and sky and royalty like Horus or the goddess of motherhood like Isis so often depicted holding a baby. This could have been the God-shaped God of Hathor or the jackal-headed God Anubis. So Moses said, God, when I go to your people and tell them that God sent me, which statue do I point to? See, this is important because before we can get our hopes up uh, and maybe make Pharaoh mad at us, we'd like to know which model we're getting. Right? Which God do I tell them sent me? And God just answers, I am who I am. Take it or leave it. Very similar to Peter's so This is who Jesus is. I've often wondered if this question that Moses asked and, and the human tendency that that question reveals, is it what prompted God to say you should have no statues of me? Thou shalt have no graven images is the way I was talking. Because let's be honest, what would be so evil about having a statue of God? I mean, most people I believe are capable of what we call iconography rather than idolatry. Iconography is to worship through a thing rather than worshiping the thing. So, uh, 
people who believe in iconography believe the, the, the statue, but say, focuses my attention on the comic that allows me to worship through the statue to the real God that the statue kind of rep- represents. I don't actually believe the statue itself is God. And this is in contrast to believing that, that this statue, this object, is something that needs to be worshipped. So, so why is God so picky about having no graven images of him? Why not just caution about the nuanced differences between idolatry and idolatry and idolatry? I think the answer is his name. To make a statue of God, you must decide who God is. Is he gentle? Or maybe all seeing and powerful and quick, like the falcon head God? Or maybe God is restless and vengeful, like the mummified God? See, to make a statue, you have to pick and choose the features of God that you wish to focus on. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church has a problem with how neat and clean most of the theologies in the Western Church are. Not because they necessarily disagree with the theologies, but because those theologies tend to be like idols. The, the cute little descriptions of God and how he works in it, and that can be easily understood and communicated. See, the, the original prohibition for having idols, the second commandment, wasn't a prohibition towards worshiping the other gods. That was the first commandment. And the Lord your God had no other gods. Then, have no statues or anything to bow down and worship So you could sum up the first commandments as, I know that God would be, don't try to limit me or capture me from statues. Take my name seriously, which happens to be God, take my name seriously. I think with modern people who are far too civilized to worship a statue, break the second commandment all the time. We make little theological statues made out of words. Of God, with the features and characteristics that we like the most. And again, it, it comes out looking an awful lot like us. Only maybe a little version of us. And we come down and worship that image. But I think the gist of the commandments of the King God And then it's the introduction to evangelical theology. Paul Mark outlines the things that combat the theologian as he attempts to offer some explanation for God. He says, The devil will find you, and every little sin and bias will find you, and the world will find you, and he has a whole list of things that will fight against you as you try to do the work of theology. But the last one is. God says, God will always fight against being condensed to a definition. So even as Mark encourages the, the work of theology, he says, but don't think for a moment that God is going to go along with it. Whatever you think you have been figured out, he'll reveal himself to be always the opposite. I think accepting this is very important for a spiritual life because God is not only too big for us, to really fully understand. In fact, I would say this, any God that you can understand is way too small to be worthy of your worship and 
if you can get him and if it's the same thing with rationalism, he's not good enough to worship. But it can be also really damaging to our faith when we think we know how God works and he does something completely unexpected. I mean, it's fine when you thought that God was going to give you the one job that you really wanted, but instead he gave you this other great job. We love those surprises, right? We celebrate that God can't be put in the box. Well, I thought I was for this, but God gave you this other thing. In those moments, we, we love that we can't nail God. But what happens when someone dies and then wasn't in the script? And the Bible says God is the giver and taker of life. What happens when your marriage falls apart? What happens when your finances crumble? What happens when your enemy prevails? What happens when you're Jonah and God tells you to give a prophecy to a foreign land that he's going to destroy? And then God changes his mind because they repent. And now you're the prophet who gave a false prophecy. Then there's a really uncomfortable reality that exists all through the scripture that basically boils down to God has to be taken as he is. And not in the things that you would like to put it in. From God refusing to be named the way Moses wanted. And instead of taking the name, I am who I am. All the way to Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God has been saying, you have to take me in the moment for who I am. It's what we call a relationship. See, Thomas asked Jesus back in John 14 for a map. Jesus had told him that he'd be leaving soon. He promised to come and get them, and, and Thomas wanted directions. Something he could follow with or without Jesus. And Jesus simply said, I am the man. I am the way. It's called relationship. Something you cannot do without Jesus. So we begin the series with a look at, at, at redeeming our broken, broken relationship with God. I believe that begins by taking God for who He really is and not who we would have Him. So how do we respond to this? Uh, there's a beautiful and uncomfortable picture of David accepting God for who he is right after the story of Bathsheba. David had been told that Bathsheba's baby would die. If no remember, David had, had taken Bathsheba, another man's wife, to his bed and, and because he got Bathsheba pregnant, he had to formulate a plan to get rid of her husband, and he did that, and his plan was he could move Bathsheba into his harem and, and, uh, and cover the whole thing up, but the prophet Nathan came and called him out, uh, and, and Nathan told David that Bathsheba's baby, David's baby, would come back, and David fasted and cried and showed all the traditional signs of mourning when the baby got sick. He was so inconsolable that his staff was concerned about it. In fact, when the baby actually died, they feared to tell David. Because if he was this out of control over the baby being sick, 
how is he going to take the baby's death? And when they told David about the death of his child, David got up and cleaned himself up and ate some food. His people were shocked and they confronted him again and simply said, as long as, or, and David simply said, as long as David was alive, I thought I might be able to persuade God to change his mind. But now I just have to accept it. And frankly, that is a weird level of relationship. That's the kind of stuff I pull with my wife. Dropping hints about where I want to eat, hoping she'll pick up on it, and having her choose something different, and me having to shift gears and get on board. And never a million years questioning her character because she didn't choose my restaurant. Because I really did want her to pick a place that she was like. So there's a weird sense of disappointment and satisfaction in almost every relationship on the planet is a blend of those two things. My kids are maybe the most important thing in the world to me. I can't explain the, the satisfaction and meaning that they bring to my life. It's a love like I didn't know could exist. And every single one of them disappoints me on a regular basis. And I submit that if we accept God for who He is, of being too grand for our minds to grasp, if we accept Him for who He is and allow Him to be who He is, that means we will often be frustrated. And I dare say, disappointed with Him. Then I believe we will find ourselves, if we will accept that, in a real relationship with a real God. Because that's what real relationships look like. For me, I choose to use Hebrews 1 as my framework for understanding God. Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, He's spoken to us through His Son. God uh, promised everything to His Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, He created the universe. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. I take that to mean that despite all the ways that God chose to reveal Himself, the final and fullest revelation, down to the very character of God, is Jesus. So I don't read the scripture and I'm confused about the nature and character of God or remind myself that this picture of God is the same picture that is found in Jesus. And if I can't see that, then I'm all. And need to give it more time because Jesus is the fullest and final revelation of God. But, the word we all hate, but, I still have to be careful to take God in the moment for who He is. Because there are times when God doesn't make sense to me. And if I insist on forcing God into a program that I can understand and that I consider rational and logical and likely to miss God completely. So the way that I would like to respond to this message is to do some metacognition, which basically just means to think about the way you think. So spend some time this morning and, and throughout this next week thinking about the way you think about God. What do you assume about God? Who are the people who really frustrate God in your opinion? What makes God smile? 
where is the one area that you and God totally disagree? Be honest with that. What is the one thing that you think that God of the universe should totally do that the real God of the universe seems to have no desire to do it at all? How do you think God feels about the people in the world? Paying close attention to the people Jesus got frustrated with and the ones he embraced and worked with. How does that line up with your feelings about people? What might God really care about that honestly you couldn't care less about? And what do you care deeply about? That if you're honest, God probably doesn't care much about it all. Relationships start with honesty. And I think that means not only being honest, but honestly allowing the other person or God to be honest as well. God has gone to great lengths to self-disclose in the Scripture Himself. Self-disclose Himself. And one of the main reasons that we as a community organize by and around the Word of God and we gather around a common teaching isn't to learn or just to learn how to act, to learn how to be more Christian. That's sometimes a byproduct. But the reason we are bibliocentric or centered around the Bible is because that's how we learn who God is. And our job is to accept the God that we find there.